Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Have you ever read the Declaration of Independence? If you have, you will know that it is not a Fourth of July oration. The Declaration of Independence was a document preliminary to war. It was a vital piece of practical business, not a piece of rhetoric. And if you will pass beyond those preliminary passages, which we are accustomed to quote about the rights of men and read into the heart of the document, you will see that it is very express and detailed, that it consists of a series of definite specifications concerning actual public business of the day. Not the business of our day, for the matter with which it deals is past, but the business of that first revolution by which the nation was set up the business of 1776. Its general statements, its general declarations cannot mean anything to us unless we append to it a similar specific body of particulars as to what we consider the essential business of our own day. Liberty does not consist, my fellow citizens, in mere general declarations of the rights of man. It consists in the translation of those declarations into definite action. Therefore, standing here where the Declaration was adopted, reading its business-like sentences, we ought to ask ourselves what there is in it for us. There is nothing in it for us unless we can translate it into the terms of our own conditions and our own lives. We must reduce it to what the lawyers call a Bill of Particulars. It contains a Bill of Particulars, but the Bill of Particulars of 1776... If we would keep it alive, we must fill it with a bill of particulars of the year 1914. The way to be patriotic in America is not only to love America, but to love the duty that lies nearest to our hand and know that in performing it, we are serving our country. There are some gentlemen in Washington, for example, at this very moment, who are showing themselves very patriotic in a way which does not attract wide attention, but seems to belong to mere everyday obligations. The members of the House and Senate who stay in hot Washington to maintain a quorum of the houses and transact the all-important business of the nation are doing an act of patriotism. I honor them for it, and I am glad to stay there and stick by them until the work is done. When the facts are known and acknowledged, the duty of all patriotic men is to accept them in candor and to address themselves hopefully and confidently to the common counsel which is necessary to act upon them wisely and in universal concert. I have had some experiences in the last 14 months which have not been entirely reassuring. 
It was universally admitted, for example, my fellow citizens, that the banking system of this country needed reorganization. We set the best minds that we could find to the task of discovering the best method of reorganization. But we met with hardly anything but criticism from the bankers of the country. We met with hardly anything but resistance from the majority of those at least who spoke at all concerning the matter. And yet, so soon as that act was passed, there was a universal chorus of applause, and the very men who had opposed the measure joined in that applause. In one sense, the Declaration of Independence has lost its significance. It has lost its significance as a Declaration of National Independence. Nobody outside of America believed when it was uttered that we could make good our independence. Now nobody anywhere would dare to doubt that we are independent and can maintain our independence. As a Declaration of Independence, therefore, it is a mere historic document. Our independence is a fact so stupendous that it can be measured only by the size and energy and variety and wealth and power of one of the greatest nations of the world. But it is one thing to be independent, and it is another thing to know what to do with your independence. The most patriotic man, ladies and gentlemen, is sometimes the man who goes in the direction that he thinks right, even when he sees half the world against him. It is the dictate of patriotism to sacrifice yourself if you think that that is the path of honor and duty. Do not blame others if they do not agree with you. Do not die with bitterness in your heart because you did not convince the rest of the world, but die happy because you believe that you tried to serve your country by not selling your soul. Those were grim days, the days of 1776. Those gentlemen did not attach their names to the Declaration of Independence on this table, expecting a holiday on the next day, and that 4th of July was not itself a holiday. They attached their signatures to that significant document, knowing that if they failed, it was certain that every one of them would hang for the failure. They were committing treason in the interest of the liberty of three million people in America. All the rest of the world was against them and smiled with cynical incredulity at the audacious undertaking. Do you think that if they could see this great nation now, they would regret anything that they then did to draw the gaze of a hostile world upon them? Every idea must be started by somebody, and it is a lonely thing to start anything. Yet if it is in you... You must start it if you have a man's blood in you, and if you love the country that you profess to be working for. I am sometimes very much interested when I see gentlemen supposing that popularity is the way to success in America. The way to success in this great country, with its fair judgments, is to show that you are not afraid of anybody except God and His final verdict. If I did not believe in that, I would not believe in democracy. If I did not believe that, I would not believe that people can govern themselves. If I did not believe that the moral judgment would be the last judgment, the final judgment, in the minds of men as well as the tribunal of God, I could not believe in popular government. 
But I do believe in these things, and therefore I earnestly believe in the democracy not only of America, but of every awakened people that wishes and intends to govern and control its own affairs. It is very inspiring, my friends, to come to this that may be called the original fountain of independence and liberty in America, and here drink the draughts of patriotic feeling, which seem to renew the very blood in one's veins. No man could do the work that has to be done in Washington if he allowed himself to be separated from that body of principle. He must make himself feel that he is a part of the people of the United States that he is trying to think not only for them, but with them, and then he cannot feel lonely. He not only cannot feel lonely, but he cannot feel afraid of anything. My dream is that as the years go on and the world knows more and more of America, it will also drink at these fountains of youth and renewal, that it will also turn to America for those moral inspirations which lie at the basis of all freedom that the world will never fear America unless it feels that it is engaged in some enterprise which is inconsistent with the rights of humanity, and that America will come into the full light of the day when all shall know that she puts human rights above all other rights, and that her flag is the flag not only of America, but of humanity. What other great people has devoted itself to this exalted ideal? To what other nation in the world can all eyes look for an instant sympathy that thrills the whole body politic when men anywhere are fighting for their rights? I do not know that there will ever be a declaration of independence and of grievances for mankind, but I believe that if any such document is ever drawn, it will be drawn the spirit of the American Declaration of Independence, and that America has lifted high the light which will shine unto all generations and guide the feet of mankind to the goal of justice and liberty and peace. Woodrow Wilson, speaking at Independence Hall in Philadelphia, July 4th, 1914. And greetings, everybody. It is I, CJ, your guerrilla scholar, warrior, and renaissance man in this ever-darkening new dark age in which we increasingly find ourselves. Yes, I am back finally with the latest installment in the ongoing DHP Villains Woodrow Wilson series. And in this one, we're going to focus on 1914, which of course was Wilson's second year in the White House. We're mostly going to be looking at the domestic side of things for that year, as well as some important personal changes for Wilson and his family. Now, of course, 1914 also saw some very important developments in the realm of foreign affairs, namely the outbreak of World War I in Europe in the summer of that year, and also that year saw the beginnings of Woodrow Wilson's increasing interventionism in Latin America and the Caribbean. 
But I'm not really going to dig into those in this episode, because I plan on making a whole episode in the relatively near future about the Wilson administration's dance regarding World War I, the dance that it did between August of 1914, when the war broke out in Europe, and April of 1917, which is when Wilson finally asks for and gets a declaration of war, and the U.S. officially enters the war. Even though it's very clear that Wilson had picked sides a long time before then. Also, I do plan on doing an entire episode, possibly a bonus episode, just for DHP supporters on Patreon and Subscribestar, all about Wilson's so-called banana wars, by which, of course, I mean all of his many interventions in Latin America and the Caribbean. But in this episode that you're listening to right now, I'm only going to briefly mention one thing that relates to Latin America, and that is the ending of the Panama Canal exemption in 1914. Now, this had to do with the origins of the U.S. building the Panama Canal, I mean, technically finishing it, it had already been begun by a French company initially, if my memory serves. But it was, of course, the arch-imperialist progressive Teddy Roosevelt who engineered the Panamanian Revolution, which split it off from Colombia, and then paved the way for the U.S. to take over the Canal Zone and complete the canal. So, all the way back in 1901, U.S. Secretary of State at the time, John Hay, had signed a treaty with the British ambassador on the subject of the U.S. building a canal in Panama. And Article 3 of this treaty said that the canal, quote, shall be free and open, end quote, to vessels, quote, of all nations on terms of entire equality, end quote. And this then went on to say that charges for use of the canal would be just and fair. However, in 1912, Congress had passed an act which would exempt all U.S. vessels from paying tolls if they weren't engaged in international trade. So, in other words, if, for example, a ship was just bringing cargo from the American Pacific coast to the Atlantic coast, or vice versa by means of the canal, it would not pay any tolls. Ex-President Teddy Roosevelt, who, like I said, had been behind the construction of the canal, loudly supported this exemption for American shipping, and most Republicans and even many Democrats agreed with this exemption as fair in light of the fact that the U.S. had built the canal. But the British strongly objected that this was unfair and violated the Treaty of 1901, and Wilson ultimately agreed with them, arguing that it was important for the U.S. government to stand by the treaties that it made with other nations. And that whether or not the exemption violated the letter of the treaty, it certainly violated the spirit of it. So on March 5th, 1914, Wilson spoke to Congress yet again, this time on the subject of repealing the exemption provision of the Panama Canal Act. It was his shortest speech ever. The exemption was repealed by a vote of 50 to 35 in the Senate and 247 to 162 in the House. The British, not surprisingly, absolutely loved this, and according to historian Scott Berg, quote, Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, thereafter became a great friend of Colonel House and the United States government, end quote. And other elite Brits, such as the recent ex-ambassador to the U.S., James Viscount Bryce, absolutely gushed with compliments on Wilson's statesmanship for having done this. 
Now, that issue aside, this episode is going to focus mostly on the latter phases of Wilson getting his so-called New Freedom Agenda passed with the same Congress that had already gotten through the majority of the major planks of it in 1913, which we covered in the previous installment in the Wilson series. And this was the 63rd Congress of the United States. This was the Congress through which Wilson got most of his major domestic agenda items passed. And it was the longest duration Congress in American history, serving in multiple sessions from March of 1913 until March of 1915, without a whole lot in the way of time off. So, after getting so much of what he wanted to get done passed in 1913, like the reduction of the tariff, the imposition of a federal income tax, and the passage of the Federal Reserve Act. In 1914, Wilson focused on the one still unaccomplished major part of his New Freedom platform, namely dealing further with the so-called trust issue, or what to do about big corporations. Ultimately, two acts would be passed in 1914, ostensibly aimed at addressing this so-called trust problem, and they would be the Clayton Antitrust Act and the Federal Trade Commission Act. The Clayton Act actually passed after the Federal Trade Commission Act, but it was the Clayton Act that Wilson got working on first in 1914, so I'm going to talk about that one first, and then mention the Federal Trade Commission Act. So, the Clayton Antitrust Act would be the first major revision of or addition to America's antitrust law since the original act that began uh, U.S. government antitrust activity, that of course being the Sherman Antitrust Act passed all the way back in 1890. Now, regardless of their stance overall on the trust issue and the economy in general, It certainly seems like most American politicians, by my reading, had criticisms of the Sherman Act by the second decade of the 20th century, and a lot of it involved the vagueness of the Sherman Act. The Sherman Act declared conspiracies or combinations in restraint of trade, as well as attempting to set up monopolies, to be illegal, but it was overall still pretty short and vague, and it didn't really specify precisely in detail what specific business practices would be seen by the feds as breaking the law. Now, the Sherman Act mostly sat dormant on the books for its first decade in existence. It was rarely invoked until Teddy Roosevelt started to enforce it, though, of course, he enforced it very selectively. Teddy Roosevelt sorted American trusts into good trusts and bad trusts, and... Most of the ones he classified as good trusts that had nothing to worry about from the federal government happened to be big corporations connected to J.P. Morgan. While most of the corporations that Teddy Roosevelt went after under the Sherman Act were non-Morgan trusts. Teddy Roosevelt's immediate successor in the White House, William Howard Taft, invoked the law even more frequently and enforced it even more even-handedly, and the courts during both the T.R. and Taft administrations worked out some of the Sherman Act's meaning and practice, but still many American politicians and pundits had decided by the time of the 1912 election, if not a bit sooner in some cases, that the Sherman Act by itself was not enough to deal satisfactorily with the so-called trust question. 
Now, this included Wilson, who, influenced to a large extent by Louis Brandeis on this issue, by early 1914 wanted something that would add to and build upon the Sherman Act by adding more clarity and by prohibiting certain specific business practices. The specific business practices that he and a lot of other progressives at the time most wanted to target were so-called interlocking directorates, in which the same people would control supposedly separate competing companies, essentially attempting to create monopolies but that were camouflaged by being spread throughout multiple nominally separate companies. Now, part of Wilson's argument for a new antitrust law to add specificity to the Sherman Act is actually pretty reasonable, within the status paradigm anyway. And it's an argument that even a relatively laissez-faire minarchist sort of a person would probably go along with. Namely, that having a vague antitrust law like the Sherman Act is ultimately bad for entrepreneurs, because it creates uncertainty on their part as to whether or not they're in danger of running afoul of the feds. And therefore, assuming the premises that you're going to have a state and it's going to be trying to prevent and break up monopolies in the private sector, then it would be preferable if the laws on that were pretty specific so that businessmen could know with a high degree of certainty whether or not they were going to break the law before they made some decision about how to run their business so that they'd have, you know, a better chance of avoiding having the government come after them for an alleged infraction. And Wilson said in a statement along these lines, quote, nothing hampers business like uncertainty, end quote. And he said that businesses were being hamstrung with uncertainty due to, quote, the risk of falling under the condemnation of the law before it can make sure just what the law is, end quote. Now, in general, Wilson's rhetoric in 1914 on both the Clayton Act and the Federal Trade Commission Act emphasized the idea of cooperation between corporations and the government. And it emphasized that he, Wilson, wasn't really anti-business, but was on the side of good businessmen and against only bad ones. Now, clearly he was trying to signal to as many big businessmen as possible that he wasn't really an anti-corporate progressive, like, for example, uh, Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin, and that even though Wilson's pro-corporatism may not have been as pronounced and as explicit as Teddy Roosevelt's was, nonetheless, he was trying to signal that big businesses really had nothing to fear as long as they played ball with Wilson's administration. Also, there was a sharp recession that hit in 1913, and Wilson may in part have been, with this more moderate rhetoric of cooperating with business, may have been trying to reassure businessmen and thereby, you know, prevent the economy from falling into deeper recession based on business fears and that sort of thing. So, in January of 1914, pretty soon after the passage of the Federal Reserve Act, which you may recall was passed near the end of 1913, Wilson spoke to Congress on the trust issue, and I'll share with you some key parts of that speech now. So this is going to be a speech from January of 1914 titled, Address to a Joint Session of Congress on Trusts and Monopolies. And by the way, understand that most of the time when I'm sharing pieces from Wilson's speeches, 
I'm cutting out all sorts of extraneous passages that don't really add to the substance of the speech, but that are basically just Wilson loving to hear himself talk, in my opinion. He wrote all of his own speeches, and most of his speeches as president, just like most of his academic writings before, are loaded with all kinds of unnecessary, pedantic, pretentious, and verbose word salads. Like this little piece here, for example, which I was going to cut out from this particular speech, but which I'm sharing with you here just as an example of the kind of bullshit that I have to constantly clip out of Wilson's speeches in order to avoid them being even longer and more boring than they already are. Quote, Constructive legislation, when successful, is always the embodiment of convincing experience and of mature public opinion which finally springs out of that experience. Legislation is a business of interpretation, not of origination, and it is now plain that the opinion is to which we must give effect in this matter. It is not recent or hasty opinion. It springs out of the experience of a whole generation. It has clarified itself by long contest, and those who for a long time battled with it and sought to change it are now frankly and honorably yielding to it and seeking to conform their actions to it. End quote. So yeah, just please understand that in almost all of his speeches, I'm often leaving out multiple passages of that sort of caliber, of just word salady bullshit. But I do my best not to leave out anything that would cause the overall meaning or substance of the speech to be altered or lost or anything like that. So anyway, jumping into one of the more relatively substantive parts of this speech, Wilson said to Congress, quote, the antagonism between business and government is over. We are now about to give expression to the best business judgment of America. To what we know to be the business conscience and honor of the land. The government and businessmen are ready to meet each other halfway in a common effort to square business methods with both public opinion and the law. The best-informed men of the business world condemn the methods and processes and consequences of monopoly as we condemn them, and the instinctive judgment of the vast majority of businessmen everywhere goes with them. We shall now be their spokesmen. It will be understood that our object is not to unsettle business or anywhere seriously to break its established courses athwart. On the contrary, we desire the laws we are now about to pass to be the bulwarks and safeguards of industry against the forces that have disturbed it. What we have to do can be done in a new spirit, in thoughtful moderation, without revolution of any untoward kind. We are all agreed that private monopoly is indefensible and intolerable, and our program is founded upon that conviction. It will be a comprehensive but not a radical or unacceptable program, and these are its items, the changes which opinion deliberately sanctions and for which business waits. It waits with acquiescence in the first place for laws which will effectually prohibit and prevent such interlockings of the personnel of the directorates of great corporations, banks, railroads, industrial, commercial, and public service bodies as in effect result in making those who borrow and those who lend practically one and the same, those who sell and those who buy, but the same persons trading with one another, under different names and in different combinations, and those who affect to compete in fact partners and masters of some whole field of business. 
Such a prohibition will work much more than a mere negative good by correcting the serious evils which have arisen because, for example, the men who have been the directing spirits of the great investment banks have usurped the place which belongs to independent industrial management working in its own behoof. It will bring new men, new energies, a new spirit of initiative, new blood into the management of our great business enterprises. It will open the field of industrial development and origination to scores of men who have been obliged to serve when their abilities entitled them to direct. It will immensely hearten the young men coming on and will greatly enrich the business activities of the whole country. The business of the country awaits also, has long awaited and has suffered because it could not obtain further and more explicit legislative definition of the policy and meaning of the existing antitrust law, by which, of course, he means the 1890 Sherman Act. Back to Wilson. Nothing hampers business like uncertainty. Nothing daunts or discourages it like the necessity to take chances, to run the risk of falling under the condemnation of the law before it can make sure just what the law is. Surely, we are sufficiently familiar with the actual processes and methods of monopoly and of the many hurtful restraints of trade to make definition possible, at any rate, up to the limits of what experience has disclosed. Those practices, being now abundantly disclosed, can be, explicitly and item by item, forbidden by statute, in such terms as will practically eliminate uncertainty, the law itself and the penalty being made equally plain. And the businessmen of the country desire something more than that the menace of legal process in these matters be made explicit and intelligible. They desire the advice, the definite guidance and information, which can be supplied by an administrative body, an interstate trade commission, end quote. And here he's calling for what ends up being ultimately the Federal Trade Commission. Back to Wilson, quote, The opinion of the country would instantly approve of such a commission. It would not wish to see it empowered to make terms with monopoly or in any sort to assume control of business, as if the government made itself responsible. It demands such a commission only as an indispensable instrument of information and publicity, as a clearinghouse for the facts by which both the public mind and the managers of great business undertakings should be guided, and as an instrumentality for doing justice to business, where the processes of the courts or the natural forces of correction outside the courts are inadequate to adjust the remedy to the wrong in a way that will meet all the equities and circumstances of the case. Inasmuch as our object and the spirit of our action in these matters is to meet business halfway in its processes of self-correction and disturb its legitimate course as little as possible, we ought to see to it, and the judgment of practical and sagacious men of affairs everywhere would applaud us if we did see to it, that penalties and punishments should fall not upon business itself, to its confusion and interruption, but upon the individuals who use the instrumentalities of business to do things which public policy and sound business practice condemn. Every act of business is done at the command or upon the initiative of some ascertainable person or group of persons. These should be held individually responsible, and the punishment should fall upon them, not upon the business organization of which they make illegal use. 
It should be one of the main objects of our legislation to divest such persons of their corporate cloak and deal with them as with those who do not represent their corporations, but merely by deliberate intention break the law. Businessmen the country through would, I am sure, applaud us if we were to take effectual steps to see that the officers and directors of great business bodies were prevented from bringing them and the business of the country into disrepute and danger. Other questions remain, which will need very thoughtful and practical treatment. Enterprises in these modern days of great individual fortunes are oftentimes interlocked, not by being under the control of the same directors, but by the fact that the greater part of the corporate stock is owned by a single person or group of persons who are in some way ultimately related in interest. We are agreed, I take it, that holding companies should be prohibited, but what if the controlling private ownership of individuals or actually cooperative groups of individuals? Until these things are done, conscientious businessmen the country over will be unsatisfied. They are in these things are they are in these things our mentors and colleagues. We are now about to write the additional articles of our constitution of peace, the peace that is honor and freedom and prosperity. End quote. Of course, ironically, given the closing lines of that speech, Wilson's presidency would be one of the most damaging to the peace, freedom, and prosperity of the U.S. and much of the world, for that matter. Now, there was even less agreement among congressional Democrats on the trust issue than there had been either with the tax issues or the Federal Reserve, the parts of the new freedom that were handled in 1913. More agrarian, populist-type Democrats wanted a new antitrust law that would prohibit certain specific business practices and that also would empower the government to more aggressively go after corporations that were attempting to set up monopolies or cartels. But at the same time, these more kind of Bryanite Democrats opposed a strong federal commission to regulate corporations. Democrats who came from more urban and industrial areas didn't want to take as hard of a line against all forms of business cooperation and concentration. And furthermore, there was the Progressive Party, which was still in existence for a little while after the 1912 election. And that party stuck to the Teddy Roosevelt line that trusts shouldn't be broken up, but should somehow be regulated by the government in order to make sure they behaved in the so-called public interest. And many, though not all, progressive Democrats who came from more urban and industrial areas seem to have been thinking along similar lines. Wilson had a meeting with some top congressional Democrats not long before he gave that address to Congress on the trust issue, in which there'd been agreement on some of the points that would later be found in the Clayton Act. Also, at this meeting, Wilson had suggested some sort of a Federal Trades Commission to monitor big business activity and to try to preemptively prevent monopolistic activity and to recommend to the Justice Department intervention when companies appeared to be running afoul of the government or in danger of doing so. Now, this was a departure from his stance on this issue back in the 1912 campaign, in which Teddy Roosevelt had advocated something like this and Wilson had actually opposed it. 
And now, when Wilson came out in favor of this in 1914, some progressive party politicians actually accused him of stealing their platform. Now, in reality, at least initially, Wilson's concept of a commission for corporations was much more watered down and less powerful than what the progressive party people, including Teddy Roosevelt, had wanted. But despite this, the fact that Wilson was jumping on board the commission bandwagon at all still won over at least some of the progressive party to his side, at least for the time being. And many of Wilson's advisors, including Colonel House, at the time were urging Wilson to sort of tactically try to win over as many of the progressive party politicians as he could. Soon after Wilson's address to the Congress... Democratic Congressman Henry Clayton of Alabama, then the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, introduced a bill that reflected most of Wilson's preferences on this issue. It didn't have as much specific practices prohibited as the more agrarian Democrats were looking for. It somewhat split the difference between them on the one hand and the urban progressive Democrats and progressive party people on the other. The Regulatory Commission would be created separately from the Clayton Act in what would later become known as the Federal Trade Commission Act. The Clayton Act was intended to try to prevent monopolies and cartels from emerging in the first place, rather than trying to focus on breaking them up once they'd already been established. As such, like I've said, it focused on banning certain business practices that were believed to be the ones that led to the establishment of monopolies and cartels. Among the things that it prohibited were interlocking directorates, certain types of price discrimination, if that discrimination was believed to be having anti-competitive effects, as well as certain types of exclusive dealings and mergers and acquisitions. The Clayton Act explicitly exempted labor unions from being prosecuted under antitrust law. And by the way, back in the 1890s, I think at least once or twice, the Sherman Act was actually invoked against labor unions that were going on strike. Samuel Gompers, who was the head of the relatively moderate AFL, hailed this provision in the Clayton Act as a huge victory for organized labor, and I think he even referred to it as like a Magna Carta for labor unions. Wilson hadn't initially favored that measure being in the Clayton Act, but he was pressured to go along with it by some urban progressives. However, in addition to the Clayton Act itself, or the Clayton Bill at the time, there were four other bills introduced by Democrats in Congress in the aftermath of Wilson's address. Now, this obviously complicated things and slowed down the process a great deal, and as a result, it would take many months for the Clayton Act to work its way through Congress. Both certain business interests as well as some non-Wilsonian progressives opposed the bill for a variety of different reasons. But eventually, the Clayton Act was passed by a significant margin in the House in June. The Senate passed its own version in September, and then both houses passed the final version in early October. Wilson signed the final version of the Clayton Act into law on October 15, 1914. The Federal Trade Commission Act, which Wilson had started the ball rolling on while the Clayton Act was still working its way through Congress, would actually be the agency largely in charge of enforcing the Clayton Act. 
So, like I said, Wilson got working on the Federal Trade Commission Act while the Clayton Act was still working its way through Congress. And ultimately, the Federal Trade Commission Act would get passed a month before the Clayton Act did. I just covered the Clayton Act first because that one started earlier, working its way through Congress. Now, Wilson initially wanted a relatively weak commission that would be for investigation and publicity and information purposes only, but he was ultimately persuaded to support a full regulatory commission with a lot more power instead. And this change seems in large part to have been due to the influence of a progressive lawyer named George Rubley, whom Wilson met through Louis Brandeis. And Rubley was an advocate of a strong regulatory commission to deal with corporations, and he had actually been an advisor to Teddy Roosevelt in the 1912 campaign, at which time, of course, as we've said, T.R. had backed the idea of a strong regulatory commission for big businesses, and Wilson at the time opposed it. The Federal Trade Commission Act would set up its namesake commission as an independent agency in charge of enforcing civil, meaning non-criminal, enforcement of antitrust law in the U.S. In addition to setting up the commission, the act also laid out its powers. Quote, Under this act, the commission is empowered, among other things, to a. prevent unfair methods of competition and unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce, b. seek monetary redress and other relief for conduct injurious to consumers, C. Prescribe trade regulation rules defining with specificity acts or practices that are unfair or deceptive, and establishing requirements designed to prevent such acts or practices. D. Conduct investigations relating to the organization, business practices, and management of entities engaged in commerce. And E. Make reports and legislative recommendations to Congress. End quote. The Federal Trade Commission Act was passed by both houses in early September, and Wilson signed the act into law on September 8, 1914. The Clayton Act, as we've already mentioned, would pass the following month. Both the FTC and the Clayton Act ended up not living up to the hype and the wishes of the stronger progressives of the time, you know, the more staunch progressives. And both of these laws didn't end up making a huge impact on business practices in the U.S. really until the New Deal era of the 30s, when both of these would be used much more aggressively than they had been back in Wilson's day. Still, these two pieces of legislation were both major milestones in getting the U.S. federal government much more deeply involved in intervening into the private sector of the economy on a regular basis. And they were two more victories for Woodrow Wilson and his so-called new freedom. Wilson biographer John Milton Cooper writes that, quote, With the passage of the Clayton Act and the creation of the FTC, Wilson's initial legislative program was complete. The 63rd Congress would finally adjourn in October 1914, having met continuously for nearly 18 months. This Congress had done more than set an endurance record. It had enacted a set of laws that would profoundly change American life. The men in the two chambers took great credit for these feats, but they knew 
they would have done far less without creative, wise, and indefatigable leadership from the White House. The hero of the hour was Wilson, end quote. <laughs> Sorry, I think I just threw up a little bit in my mouth saying that, but, you know, um, I, I think it'd be accurate to call Wilson the protagonist of all this, sure. But hero, well, that really depends on whether you think the fruits of his labors were good or bad. And whether you think the better word to describe what should be given to Wilson for all this is credit or blame. But anyway, those were the two main domestic political achievements of Wilson in 1914. But now I want to mention a couple of major things that happened in kind of his personal and family life that year as well. Wilson would gain a son-in-law and lose a spouse. So, Wilson's Treasury Secretary, William Gibbs McAdoo, had for a while been socializing with and courting Wilson's daughter, Eleanor, who you may recall was usually called Nell. Despite him being literally twice Nell's age and working for Nell's father. Apparently, Nell had been engaged to another man who was much closer to her own age, and then she broke it off in February of 1914 and announced that instead she was engaged to William Gibbs McAdoo. Now, at the time, McAdoo volunteered to resign as Treasury Secretary when the engagement was announced in order to minimize any sort of scandal. But Wilson, even though he definitely was a little bit weirded out by all this, refused to ask McAdoo to resign, saying, quote, I appreciate your generous and considerate attitude, but I hope you will dismiss all thought of such a thing. You were appointed Secretary of the Treasury solely on your merit. No one imagined at that time that the present situation would arise. End quote. Wilson went on to add, though, that if McAdoo had been married or engaged to Nell prior to Wilson becoming president, he would not have nominated him to a cabinet position at all in order to avoid any appearance of nepotism. McAdoo was a widower, and his first wife, Sarah Fleming, with whom he had had no less than seven children, had died as recently as 1912. She and McAdoo had been married for 27 years when she died. Now, I have no idea what the age difference was between Sarah and Mr. McAdoo, so don't know if McAdoo was also robbing the cradle with his first wife, but when McAdoo married Eleanor Wilson, he was 50 years old, and she was 24. So, 
there was a 26-year age difference. And McAdoo was literally more than twice the age of Nell Wilson. Now, supposedly, Wilson had some hesitation about going along with the engagement because of the age difference. But ultimately, he went along with it because he already liked and respected McAdoo as a political henchman, and also I think he couldn't bring himself to block his daughter from getting what she wanted, which was to marry McAdoo. Wilson was also depressed by the wedding, though, because apparently Nell had always been the daughter with whom he had the closest relationship. Nell Wilson and William Gibbs McAdoo were married at the White House on May 7, 1914. McAdoo's children, three of whom I believe were actually older than their new stepmother, attended the wedding. But the wedding was a relatively small and modest affair by the standards of White House weddings, with fewer than 100 people in attendance. Probably because Ellen Wilson, the mother of the bride, was not doing well in terms of her health, and more on that in a moment. Though obviously Wilson liked McAdoo as a political henchman and advisor, he apparently never totally warmed up to him personally as a son-in-law. Partly, this seems to have been because Wilson really liked to draw a sharp line between work and personal life and work and personal time. And McAdoo apparently didn't always observe that line. So, for example, McAdoo would bring up work stuff during what Wilson considered, you know, kind of family downtime. And this annoyed Wilson. Wilson's brother-in-law, Stockton Axon, actually wrote about this in his memoir, Though he doesn't refer to McAdoo by name, it's very clear that he's talking about him when he wrote this in his memoir. Quote, Now, suppose a member of the family, a dear and valued relative, also full of his schemes, his plans, which he sees as the businessman, the man of affairs, the man of action, not the man of meditation, not the artist, not the literary man. Suppose he insists on talking business. It rasps the older man, the literary man. Why can't we drop business? At first, he answers graciously by trying to avoid the topic. Then his tone takes a little edge on. Then he adopts the worst of all his defenses. Silence. The silence of Woodrow Wilson is worse than the oaths of some men. More withering. End quote. And in McAdoo's memoirs, he talks about knowing the president more closely than did any other member of the cabinet, but he also continued to call his father-in-law governor, as he had since he first met him. But then he also says, McAdoo in his, his own memoirs, he says, quote, But in another sense, I hardly knew him at all, speaking of Wilson. There were wide and fertile ranges of his spirit that were closed to me, and I think to everyone else except the first Mrs. Wilson. As far as I am aware, she was the only human being who knew him perfectly. End quote. Nell and McAdoo would have two children of their own, but then they divorced in 1934 after 20 years of marriage. Now, as of this recording, I have no idea what may have caused this divorce, and honestly don't even know if there's any public info about potential causes of it. McAdoo then married his third wife the very next year, in 1935, 
to whom he remained married until death by heart attack struck him in 1941. Since he was in his 70s when he married his third wife, McAdoo had no children with her, so he just had the seven children from his first wife and the two that he had with Nell. Nell Wilson never remarried after divorcing McAdoo, and she died in 1967, and I suspect it's likely, just based on circumstantial evidence, that the divorce was caused by McAdoo having an affair with the woman who would then become his third wife, because it seems suspicious that you would, in your 70s, divorce the woman you'd been married to for the previous 20 years, and then almost immediately marry somebody else. That just seems kind of strange to me. But anyway. The other major change to Wilson's personal and family life that was an even bigger deal to him, and certainly in an even more negative way, was the death of Ellen Wilson. Mrs. Wilson had been having various somewhat subtle health issues for a while that she'd always downplayed, but she started exhibiting more and more serious symptoms during Wilson's first year in the White House, and then things continued to escalate in 1914. One night in March of 1914, she had fainted after attending a White House reception and fallen down pretty hard and hurt herself. Over the course of the spring and into the summer of 1914, Mrs. Wilson's health continued to decline, and eventually Dr. Grayson was pretty much taking care of her on a constant basis. Ellen was ultimately, not that long before her death, diagnosed with something called Bright's disease, which was a term used back then to describe a particular type of kidney ailment. She died on August 6th, just three months almost exactly to the day since her daughter had married McAdoo. Her last words were a request to Dr. Grayson that he take good care of Mr. Wilson after she was gone. Wilson was devastated. He had always been very close to his wife, and despite whatever may or may not have actually gone on between him and Mary Peck, or Mary Hurlbert, depending on what she was calling herself at a given time, despite whatever happened there, whether there was an actual consummated physical affair or not, you know, there had been some friction with Mrs. Wilson over that, but apparently they had gotten over it, and supposedly, Woodrow Wilson said right after his wife died, oh my god, what am I to do? Colonel House recorded in his diary in the months after Ellen's death that Wilson was often severely depressed, and that he even talked, now how seriously, who knows, about no longer being fit to be president, because he just couldn't think straight, and Wilson even said at one point that he didn't want to live anymore. And yet, in March of 1915, just a little over six months after Wilson's death, Wilson met and quickly took a liking to a widow named Edith Bolingalt, who had inherited from her late husband the fanciest jewelry store in D.C. at the time. Edith Galt was 15 years younger than Woodrow Wilson, but as with his treasury secretary-slash-son-in-law, Wilson didn't let that massive age gap stop him. If he was okay with his daughter marrying a guy 26 years older than she was, why should he have any reservations about marrying a woman 15 years younger than himself? Wilson quickly became infatuated and obsessed with Edith Galt, and he proposed to her in May of 1915. Again, this is just two months after meeting her, 
and less than a full year after his first wife had died. And Edith Galt initially turned him down. But Wilson persisted, and in September of 1915, he got her to accept his proposal for marriage. And before 1915 was up, Woodrow married Edith, making her the second Mrs. Woodrow Wilson and the new First Lady of the United States on December 18th, 1915, at the bride's home, in a fairly small ceremony. But getting back to 1914, which is the main focus of this episode, the other big thing that happened later in the year is that in November of 1914, there would be midterm congressional elections. And in October 1914, just a few weeks before those elections happened, Woodrow Wilson, who was still, you know, depressed from his wife's death and all that stuff, patted himself on the back and also patted the Congressional Democrats on the back in a public letter that he wrote to Oscar Underwood, who at the time was a congressman from Alabama and who was also the House Majority Leader. Wilson, in this letter, praised all the accomplishments of 1913, which, of course, I covered in the last Wilson episode as well as praising all of the things they had done over the course of 1914, which obviously is what I've been covering in this episode. This public letter, by the way, would be almost all of the campaigning that Wilson personally did on behalf of congressional Democrats in this election. Wilson was still probably dealing with grief and depression after the death of his wife, and this funk would get even worse for him after the midterms. Supposedly, in mid to late November 1914, he was in a mental state so bad that he referred to it as, quote, acute depression, end quote, and as a quote-unquote breakdown. In this letter to Oscar Underwood, Wilson wrote dramatically that, quote, private control had shown its sinister face on every hand in America, had shown it for a long time, and sometimes very brazenly, in the trust and in a virtual domination of credit by a small group of men. Quote. He then went on to pat himself and the Congressional Democrats on the back for the tax reforms of 1913 and said of the creation of the Federal Reserve, which again you may recall was passed near the very end of 1913, quote, we have created a democracy of credit such as has never existed in this country before. No group of bankers anywhere can get control. No one part of the country can concentrate the advantages and conveniences of the system upon itself for its own selfish advantage. End quote. Of course, that's exactly the opposite of what the Federal Reserve has actually done over the past 108 years which shows you that Wilson was often a useful idiot for this kind of shit. That he basically really believed that the Fed, which we now know was conceived of by and for the nation's biggest bankers at the time, at a secret meeting on Jekyll Island years before, Wilson really seems to have believed the progressive cover story that this thing was being created to go against Wall Street, to rein them in, when... The reality was literally the exact opposite, that the Federal Reserve System was created by Wall Street in order to serve their interests. But Wilson was too ignorant of economics and finance, and basically too prone to smugly sniffing his own farts to realize this truth. Now, on his antitrust measures, the Clayton Act and the Federal Trade Commission, Wilson wrote in this letter, quote, 
Before these bills were passed, the law was already clear enough that monopolies, once formed, were illegal and could be dissolved by process of law. But there was no law to check the process by which monopoly was built up until the tree was full-grown, and its fruits developed, or at any rate, until the full opportunity for monopoly had been created. With this new legislation, there is clear and sufficient law to check and destroy the noxious growth in its infancy. End quote. Now, when the midterm elections went down, Democrats lost seats in the House, but they still hung on to a majority there, just not as big of a majority as they'd had after 1912. In the Senate, in which Democrats had won a somewhat slim majority in 1912, they actually picked up a few seats, slightly increasing their majority there. So, overall, despite losing a few House seats, the elections could be seen as a pretty significant victory for Wilson and the Democrats, because midterms usually result in the party that holds the presidency losing seats in the Congress, and very often losing the majority in one or both houses if they already had it. So, the fact that the Democrats in 1914 actually gained a little bit in the Senate, and that despite losing seats, they still maintained their majority in the House, is actually pretty good midterm performance by historical standards. Especially when you consider that 1912 had also been the first time since before the Civil War that the Democrats had won both the White House and control of both houses of Congress. Probably a big part of why the Democrats in 1914 did a lot better than the party that holds the White House usually does in midterm elections is that, at the time, the Republican Party happened to be dealing with even more significant internal divisions than the Democrats were dealing with. Also noteworthy about these midterms is that it was, thanks to the 17th Amendment, which I talked a bit about last time, and which was passed in 1913. Thanks to that amendment, the 1914 congressional elections were the first time that the voters of a state, rather than the state's legislature, would select U.S. senators. Now, one more little piece of legislation that has kind of a big legacy because of what followed after it, that deserves to be mentioned from 1914, is the Harrison Narcotics Act, passed near the end of the year. Now, there are lots of big, obvious things to pin on Woodrow Wilson if you're any sort of a libertarian or conservative or even just somewhat of a constitutionalist or whatever. Things like the Federal Reserve Act, getting the U.S. into World War I and all the negative consequences that flowed from that decision and all these sorts of like big, obvious, terrible legacies of Wilson. But there are also many relatively smaller, less obvious, less conspicuous bad things that came out of his presidency as well. And, you know, as I've gone along in this series, and as I continue to go through this series, I do want to every now and then stop and point out one of these little smaller things that still has lots of long-lasting negative effects. So, this is a case in point. And honestly, I don't know that Wilson was hugely involved in this, but obviously he went along with it and signed it into law. So I don't think he was the primary impetus behind it, but certainly it sprung out of the progressivism of which he was a part. So the Harrison Narcotics Act was the first federal law to control narcotics in American history. And thus, it can be seen as the first step at the national level 
in the United States in creating what we know of as the War on Drugs. This act was passed and signed into law by Woodrow Wilson on December 17, 1914. Shortly before Wilson delivered his 1914 State of the Union address, which is how I'm going to close out this episode. And once again, he delivered his State of the Union as an in-person speech, in contrast to most presidents before him. So this is Woodrow Wilson's State of the Union address from December 8, 1914. Quote, Gentlemen of the Congress, The session upon which you are now entering will be the closing session of the 63rd Congress. A Congress, I venture to say, which will long be remembered for the great body of thoughtful and constructive work which it has done, in loyal response to the thought and needs of the country. I should liken this address to review the notable record and try to make adequate assessment of it, but no doubt we stand too near the work that has been done, and are ourselves too much part of it, to play the part of historians towards it. Our program of legislation, with regard to the regulation of business, is now virtually complete. It has been put forth as we intended as a whole, and leaves no conjecture as to what is to follow. The road at last lies clear and firm before business. It is a road which it can travel without fear or embarrassment. It is the road to ungrudged, unclouded success. In it, every honest man, every man who believes that the public interest is part of his own interest, may walk with perfect confidence. Moreover, our thoughts are now more of the future than of the past. While we have worked at our tasks of peace, the circumstances of the whole age have been altered by war. What chiefly strikes us now, as we look about us during these closing days of a year, which will be forever memorable in the history of the world, is that we face new tasks, have been facing them these six months, must face them in the months to come, face them without partisan feeling, like men who have forgotten everything but a common duty and the fact that we are representatives of a great people, whose thought is not of us, but of what America owes to herself and to all mankind in such circumstances as these, upon which we look amazed and anxious. War has interrupted the means of trade not only, but also the processes of production. In Europe, it is destroying men and resources wholesale, and upon a scale unprecedented and appalling. There is reason to fear that the time is near, if it be not already at hand, when several of the countries of Europe will find it difficult to do for their people what they have hitherto been always easily able to do, many essential and fundamental things. At any rate, they will need our help and our manifold services, as they have never needed them before, and we should be ready, more fit and ready than we have ever been. The United States, this great people for whom we speak and act, should be ready as never before to serve itself and to serve mankind. Ready, with its resources, its energies, its forces of production, and its means of distribution. We have the wish to serve and to serve greatly, generously, but we are not prepared as we should be. We are not ready to mobilize our resources at once. We are not prepared to use them immediately and at their best, without delay and without waste. End quote. 
Wilson then goes on to say that he wants the government to get more involved in creating a larger American merchant marine fleet. And after that, he has a paragraph asking the Congress to pass a measure to grant the Philippines a bit more internal self-government than they had yet at the time, though still within the U.S. empire, of course. Then he suddenly jumps back to the merchant marine question and basically advocates a form of what today would be called public-private partnership, in which the U.S. government is going to supposedly get the ball rolling with the eventual intention of handing things over entirely to the private sector at some future unspecified date regarding building a larger merchant marine fleet. So back to Wilson, quote, Hence the pending shipping bill, discussed at the last session but as yet passed by neither house. In my judgment, such legislation is imperatively needed and cannot wisely be postponed. The government must open these gates of trade and open them wide. Open them before it is altogether profitable to open them, or altogether reasonable to ask private capital to open them at a venture. It is not a question of the government monopolizing the field. It should take action to make it certain that transportation at reasonable rates will be promptly provided, even where the carriage is not at first profitable. And then, when the carriage has become sufficiently profitable to attract and engage private capital and engage it in abundance, the government ought to withdraw. I very earnestly hope that the Congress will be of this opinion and that both houses will adopt this exceedingly important bill. End quote. Wilson then goes on to spend a little time talking about something called rural credits, which honestly I'm not even sure what exactly that was. And then he also goes on to call for increased surveying and mapping of America's coasts. Wilson then closes by talking about government spending and national defense in his usually excessively wordy style. And by the way, keep in mind, again, I cut out plenty of extraneous sentences in this speech here to make it a little more concise. And even so, it's still pretty wordy and pedantic. So back to Wilson, quote, Before I close, may I say a few words upon two topics, much discussed out of doors, upon which it is highly important that our judgment should be clear, definite, and steadfast? One of these is economy in government expenditures. In the appropriations we pass, we are spending the money of the great people whose servants we are, not our own. We are trustees and responsible stewards in the spending. The only thing debatable, and upon which we should be careful to make our thought and purpose clear, is the kind of economy demanded of us. I assert with the greatest confidence that the people of the United States are not jealous of the amount their government costs if they are sure that they get what they need and desire for the outlay, that the money is being spent for objects of which they approve, and that it is being applied with good business sense and management. Governments grow piecemeal, both in their tasks and in the means by which those tasks are to be performed. And very few governments are organized, I venture to say, as wise and experienced businessmen would organize them if they had a clean sheet of paper to write upon. 
certainly the government of the United States is not. I think that it is generally agreed that there should be a systematic reorganization and reassembling of its parts so as to secure greater efficiency and effect considerable savings and expense. But the amount of money saved in that way would, I believe, though no doubt considerable in itself, running it may be, into the millions, be relatively small. Small, I mean, in proportion to the total necessary outlays of the government. It would be thoroughly worth effecting, as every saving would, great or small. Our duty is not altered by the scale of the saving. But my point is that the people of the United States do not wish to curtail the activities of this government. They wish, rather, to enlarge them. And with every enlargement, with the mere growth, indeed, of the country itself, there must come, of course, the inevitable increase of expense. The sort of economy we ought to practice may be affected, and ought to be affected, by a careful study and assessment of the tasks to be performed. And the money spent ought to be made to yield the best possible returns in efficiency and achievement. And, like good stewards, we should so account for every dollar of our appropriations as to make it perfectly evident what it was spent for and in what way it was spent. It is not expenditure, but extravagance that we should fear being criticized for, not paying for the legitimate enterprise and undertakings of a great government whose people command what it should do, but adding what will benefit only a few or pouring money out for what need not have been undertaken at all, or might have been postponed, or better and more economically conceived and carried out. The nation is not niggardly. It is very generous. It will chide us only if we forget for whom we pay money out and whose money it is we pay. End quote. And after that rambling defense of big government and big budgets to fund it, Wilson then moves on to defense. Keeping in mind that World War I had been going on in Europe already for several months at this point, and while most Americans at the time wanted to stay the hell out of it, there was a very vocal and often wealthy and very connected minority of Americans that wanted the U.S. to get into it. Basically, people like Teddy Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge and their crowd of overt militarist imperialist types. And at the time, those sorts of people were already arguing in favor of increasing the U.S. military drastically in the name of what they called preparedness. Now, as of late 1914, Wilson was, for the most part, still resisting this. And much of what he says in this speech on this topic, I actually find pretty reasonable. And some of this upcoming passage I'm about to read sounds almost Jeffersonian or even, dare I say, Ron Paulian, because it urges America to exercise its influence peacefully, primarily by example. It emphasizes true defense only as foreign policy. And it says that the backbone of defense for a relatively free republic should be a citizen militia rather than a massive standing professional army combined with an effective navy. Because, of course, given the geographical situation of the U.S., a lot of its actual defense can be handled just by having a good navy. But Wilson says it should be a navy geared towards defense only. 
Though, of course, keeping in mind, even if Wilson did still mean all of these things sincerely as of December 1914, he certainly wouldn't be sincere in these sorts of statements and pronouncements for very much longer. Though, he would continue uttering these sorts of statements right on up through his re-election campaign in 1916. So anyway, here's Wilson on national defense at the end of 1914. Quote, The other topic which I shall take leave to mention goes deeper into the principles of our national life and policy. It is the subject of national defense. It cannot be discussed without first answering some very searching questions. It is said in some quarters that we are not prepared for war. What is meant by being prepared? Is it meant that we are not ready, upon brief notice, to put a nation in the field? A nation of men trained to arms. Of course we are not ready to do that. And we never shall be. In time of peace, so long as we retain our present political principles and institutions. And what is it that is suggested we should be prepared to do? To defend ourselves against attack? We have always found means to do that, and shall find them whenever it is necessary, without calling our people away from their necessary tasks to render compulsory military service in times of peace. Allow me to speak with great plainness and directness upon this great matter, and to avow my convictions with deep earnestness. We are at peace with all the world. No one who speaks counsel based on fact or drawn from a just and candid interpretation of realities can say that there is reason to fear that from any quarter our independence or the integrity of our territory is threatened. Dread of the power of any other nation we are incapable of. We are not jealous of rivalry in the fields of commerce or of any other peaceful achievement. We mean to live our own lives as we will but we mean also to let live. We are indeed a true friend to all the nations of the world because we threaten none, covet the possessions of none, desire the overthrow of none. Our friendship can be accepted and is accepted without reservation because it is offered in a spirit and for a purpose which no one need ever question or suspect. Therein lies our greatness. We are the champions of peace and of concord. And we should be very jealous of this distinction, which we have sought to earn. Just now, we should be particularly jealous of it because it is our dearest present hope that this character and reputation may presently, in God's providence, bring us an opportunity such as has seldom been vouchsafed any nation, the opportunity to counsel and obtain peace in the world and reconciliation and a healing settlement of many a matter that has cooled and interrupted the friendship of nations. This is the time above all others when we should wish and resolve to keep our strength by self-possession, our influence by preserving our ancient principles of action. From the first, we have had a clear and settled policy with regard to military establishments. We have never had, and while we retain our present principles and ideals, we never shall have, a large standing army. If asked, are you ready to defend yourselves, we reply, most assuredly to the utmost. And yet, we shall not turn America into a military camp. 
We will not ask our young men to spend the best years of their lives making soldiers of themselves. There is another sort of energy in us. It will know how to declare itself and make itself effective should occasion arise. And especially when half the world is on fire, we shall be careful to make our moral insurance against the spread of the conflagration very definite and certain and adequate indeed. Let us remind ourselves, therefore, of the only thing we can do or will do. We must depend in every time of national peril in the future as in the past, not upon a standing army, nor yet upon a reserve army, but upon a citizenry trained and accustomed to arms. It will be right enough, right American policy, based upon our accustomed principles and practices, to provide a system by which every citizen who will volunteer for the training may be made familiar with the use of modern arms, the rudiments of drill and maneuver, and the maintenance and sanitation of camps. We should encourage such training and make it a means of discipline which our young men will learn to value. It is right that we should provide it not only, but that we should make it as attractive as possible, so as to induce our young men to undergo it at such times as they can command a little freedom and can seek the physical development they need, for mere health's sake, if for nothing more. Every means by which such things can be stimulated is legitimate, and such a method smacks of true American ideas. It is right, too, that the National Guard of the states should be developed and strengthened by every means which is not inconsistent with our obligations to our own people or with the established policy of our government. And this also not because the time or occasion specially calls for such measures, but because it should be our constant policy to make these provisions for our national peace and safety. More than this carries with it a reversal of the whole history and character of our polity. More than this, proposed at this time, permit me to say, would mean merely that we had lost our self-possession, that we had been thrown off our balance by a war with which we have nothing to do, whose causes cannot touch us, whose very existence affords us opportunities of friendship and disinterested service which should make us ashamed of any thought of hostility or fearful preparation for trouble. This is assuredly the opportunity for which a people and a government like ours were raised up. The opportunity not only to speak, but actually to embody and exemplify the counsels of peace and amity and the lasting concord, which is based on justice and fair and generous dealing. A powerful navy we have always regarded as our proper and natural means of defense, and it has always been of defense that we have thought, never of aggression or of conquest. End quote. Side note, I guess he doesn't know about the Spanish-American War and all that, or he's choosing to ignore it. Back to Wilson, quote, We shall take leave to be strong upon the seas in the future as in the past and there will be no thought of offense or of provocation in that. Our ships are our natural bulwarks. We shall not alter our attitude toward it, because some amongst us are nervous and excited. We shall easily and sensibly agree upon a policy of defense. The question has not changed its aspects because the times are not normal. Our policy will not be for an occasion. It will be conceived as a permanent and settled thing 
which we will pursue at all seasons, without haste and after a fashion perfectly consistent with the peace of the world, the abiding friendship of states, and the unhampered freedom of all with whom we deal. Let there be no misconception. The country has been misinformed. We have not been negligent of national defense. I close, as I began, by reminding you of the great tasks and duties of peace which challenge our best powers and invite us to build what will last, the tasks to which we can address ourselves now and at all times with free-hearted zest and with all the finest gifts of constructive wisdom we possess. To develop our life and our resources to supply our own people and the people of the world as their need arises, from the abundant plenty of our fields and our marts of trade, to enrich the commerce of our own states and of the world with the products of our mines, our farms, and our factories, with the creations of our thought and the fruits of our character. This is what will hold our attention and our enthusiasm steadily. Now and in the years to come, as we strive to show in our life as a nation what liberty and the inspirations of an emancipated spirit may do for men and for societies, for individuals, for states, and for mankind. End quote. 